Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Well, good morning. A couple of... uh... Uh, a couple of announcements before we get into the word today. Um, as you know, we are we have lost our dear sister Betty Ashley for the time being. You know, well, we're going to see her again someday, right? But what a what a tough thing! Uh, what a sweet, sweet, sweet lady! And how are we going to miss her uh, until Jesus comes, or until we uh, until we are up there with her? Uh, but she will. We will be uh, conducting a funeral service here on Tuesday. There's a visitation from 9:30 to 11, and at 11 o'clock the funeral service. And then they will be providing a meal for the family, uh, and uh, perhaps others afterward. Uh, if you, we've about got that taken care of. There are just maybe a couple things that we still need. You've been very generous in your response uh, to uh, asking uh, asking for food for this meal. If you can still help out some way, just see Shar Cooper. Shar, where are you at? Wave your hand. There she is in the very back row. Um, I'd ask her to stand, but it wouldn't make a whole lot of difference. Uh, there. Oh, it does. It does. I can see your whole face when you stand up. Uh, love you, sis. Uh, anyway, she's, uh, she's in charge of that. If you, if you can help out, see Shar after service, and she'll tell you what, what you can do to help us out with that. Uh, and we'll also continue to pray for Linda Kramer. Uh, there has been no change in terms of her condition. She's still breathing. She's still alive. And God still works miracles, right? And Paul is believing for her to wake up. We're going to believe with Paul, right, that, that, that she'll come up. She's been through a lot. She has been through an awful lot. She's been close to death many times just over the last year. And so this is uh, one more thing in the hands of our mighty God, right? So praise the Lord. Merle, you had something you wanted to share quickly, right? Well, you didn't say quickly. You said you wanted to share it. I'm saying quickly. No. <laughs> Take your liberty, brother. Uh, this week we had a, uh, advanced. We had a ranger camp. And uh, three of our guys here... Josiah Beals, Ethan, and CJ all went. And uh, this is a camp where the guys take a big leap from being a boy to a man. It's, it's accomplished. It's not a cakewalk. It really takes a lot for them to go through this. And uh, I just wanted to recognize one thing. As you go through this, there's a lot of things you got to do to be a leader in this world. And one of the biggest things you got to learn to do is be a follower. Mm. And they really drive this point home. And of all the guys that were on, on the camp there, Ethan Sanders got the highest award for that change, the biggest development. And his situation turned out like this. He's in a group of about seven. They're in a patrol. They got to do quite a few challenging things. And his leader was pretty uh, obnoxiously uh, on top of him all the time. And he kind of pushed the rest of the patrol around. Well, Ethan didn't push. And so uh, through the week, this was a big conflict. There was a lot of adults got involved. But you know what? At the end, Ethan became the most changed kid on the property. Hmm. And so I just want to recognize him for uh, what he did, all the guys. Praise the Lord. Way to represent. 
Appreciate you, man. And I appreciate you being here today. Good morning, uh, Living Word Family Church, and good morning or afternoon or whenever you're watching this out there in TV land. I uh, hope you're joining us live. It's, uh, it's better together, and I hope uh, those of you who haven't ventured out yet will do so soon. We miss you. Miss seeing you, and uh, it's better here, right, folks? Amen. Amen. Now, we are in a, a part four of a series that I said might go three or four weeks, and will likely go uh, six-ish. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we've called, uh, I've called this series Stay the Course. It's actually a study, not a verse-by-verse, although it's kind of seemed like that, uh, but a study of the book of Hebrews. And what we have learned is that it is a longish letter with uh, the main purpose of encouraging the reader, which in this case is Hebrew Christians, Jewish converts to Christianity, not to turn from their faith in Christ. It's a warning and a plea against backsliding or drifting away. And it's not backsliding in the sense that you and I think about it when we talk about somebody backsliding. We usually talk about them slipping more into a lifestyle of sin. We're talking here in the case uh, of these Hebrews, drifting away from Christianity itself and into something else. And we'll talk about that in a little more detail in a little bit. And the first message, uh, in addition to making the case for uh, Paul's authorship of this letter, we looked at the importance of remembering what brought us to Christ in the first place. And this is what the author of Hebrews says, uh, to reminds them, you know, what, go back to that, that moment when you first believed. Uh, and if you are flirting with turning back, ask yourself why. What changed? Go back to that moment. What brought you to that decision for Christ at that time? And what is it now that is causing you to consider renouncing that decision? And um, one of the suggested answers from this letter is, uh, have, are you just frustrated that you are not seeing yourself or the church at large living the victorious life that he's promised in the Old Testament and New? He draws heavily on Old Testament scripture. And uh, we read you know, that God has put all things under his feet, not under Jesus' feet, under our feet, under mankind's feet. And, and, he said, and he admits, and yet right now you don't yet see all things under your feet. And this opens up the question, this is, this is review, and I'll get through it quickly because we've got a lot to get to today. This whole, where's, where's all the evil and suffering coming from? If, if God is good and God is powerful, all good, all powerful, and if we're victorious, where's the, why this evil and suffering even in the lives of Christians? And there are great answers to that question. I love how Paul answers it. Nope, you don't yet see all things under your feet, but you do see Jesus. And he keeps bringing them back to Jesus himself. Huge lesson here, and we were... Uh, that'll be greatly developed in chapter 12. The second message was about how actually the fear of death can keep us bound to sin. Well, we, when we doubt even subconsciously that there is a resurrection of the dead, when we are not living with, uh, with being eternity-minded, we slip into the mode of, well, might just be this one life and I need to get everything out of this life here and now that I can because this might just be all there is. This is often not a conscious decision, but it is how we live and it is why when we sin, we sin. We choose to sin, or that can lead us into sin. And then last week we looked at the rest that God has provided for us. And the warning is to be diligent to enter into that rest, 
And uh, that that rest has been provided uh, by nothing less than the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, that there is nothing that remains for us to earn our rest, that we simply have to enter into it. And again, this is a warning not to slip back into the law and works trying to achieve that rest. That's a brief uh, review of where we've gotten to through chapter 4. And I encourage you to go back and listen to those messages uh, that you may have missed because the rest of this, as we go on, will make more sense if you do. Now, now we get to the part where he, the author begins to describe Jesus as the high priest, our high priest, the perfect high priest. And we talked last week about how the role of the priest was to represent man to God, to intercede, to stand in that gap, and that a big part of that ministry, that priestly ministry, was to bring offerings for sin. Right? Now, uh, let's... Uh, Let's read beginning with the last thing we read last week, and that was in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Then we continue into chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. He's referring to the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood, those who had been assigned the role of the priest, and the point he's making is simple. They went in and they made sacrifices and offerings for the people, but they also had to do it for themselves. All right? Come back to that in a minute. Uh, verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is uh, quoting Psalm 110, by the way. Verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus now, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So here is the groundwork for his message on the priestly role that Jesus performs on our behalf. And the point is this. Again, the priests were not priests because they were inherently holier or better than the rest of the people. This was a role that was assigned to a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi. Levi. They were chosen to fill the offices of the priesthood on behalf of the other tribes. It was their calling. It was their responsibility to Israel. And the reason they were able to do it effectively was because they, being sinful men themselves, 
could relate. They could have compassion on those uh, on, on whose beha- for those on whose behalf they were offering the sacrifices. Jesus, as our high priest, is superior to the Levites and demonstrates a deeper love for us because the sacrifice he offered was not for him at all, right? There, Jesus needed no sin offering on his own behalf. The offering he poured out uh, was entirely for us. He offered himself for us totally selfless. And we read where Jesus is not a priest in the Levitical sense at all, a totally different order. And the author stops and says, it's, this is a super important difference. There's it, the, the difference between a priest like Aaron and a priest uh, and Melchizedek. And it's going to be difficult to teach you this stuff. This is what Paul's saying. This is important. You need to see the difference. That there is the priesthood that we're all familiar with, the Levites, the Aaronic priesthood, and then there is Melchizedek. And I have a lot to say about him, and it's important, but I'm frustrated because it's going to be hard to explain. Why? Because you've become dull of hearing. And then he takes a turn. He takes a hard turn away from the discussion of the priesthood and into one of the most terrifying passages in the New Testament. It's the, what we're about to read has been called uh, in history the devil's passage. Did you know that? Not because it's not inspired. It is, like the rest of Scripture. But because it has been used or misused to cause confusion and condemnation and to sow discord and division for centuries. He starts in verse 12 explaining that they should be further along in their faith and knowledge, but then, very parts a little bit later, uh, but it's in this, this, this whole passage. Uh, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Verse 4, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Does that bother anybody but me? To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. The land that drinks in the rain often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But that land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is danger, in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now, it is important to remember who he is writing to. He is writing to the Hebrews, Jewish believers. So when he talks about these elementary principles, he's talking about things that Jews and Christians actually have in common. Listen to me. Repentance, faith, laying on of hands, resurrection, judgment, and even baptisms. I read that out of a different translation where it says uh, washings or whatever. Uh, but, but, but baptisms is plural. It's not talking about the Christian expression, the ordinance of baptism, in, as in you know, Christians are baptized once as a uh, a confession of their faith or a demonstration of their faith. He's talking about ritual washings. Um, 
these are things that are not, uh, these are all things that they were familiar with before they were Christians. They were all included in Judaism. So at least one of the things he's specifically warning against here is retreating back into Judaism. Let's don't go back to those elementary principles. You already had that before Jesus. Let's focus on Jesus. The falling away he's warning this bunch about is not backsliding into a sinful lifestyle. It's backsliding or retreating back into the respectable religion of Judaism, which is actually just a shadow of the relationship with God that can only be provided, is only available through Jesus Christ. But when it gets to verse 4, we can apply it more broadly. And here is one of those passages where the debate still rages. There is not universal agreement on what this passage means. The Calvinist um, will interpret it one way, and an Arminian will interpret it another, and I'm not qualified to give you a, a very complete rundown on what these two camps believe in any detail, but for the purposes at hand with this passage, uh, I can tell you this, that Arminians generally, generally believe that you can be saved that you can lose your salvation and be saved again. And the Calvinist believes that once you're saved, you can never lose your salvation. That is not all they believe, but that's what they believe concerning eternal security. Okay? So the Arminian position on this passage might go something like this. If you fall away, if you become unsaved, it is ridiculous to think that Christ needs to be crucified all over again in order for you to return. It's not like, well, Jesus was crucified for me and I accepted that sacrifice and I got saved and then I renounced Christ and then in order for me to come back, he has to be crucified again. And, and Paul, the author of Hebrews, God through the author of Hebrews is saying, according to this position, no, he doesn't need to be crucified again, you just need to accept him again. Um, Christ does not need to be put to open shame again just for you to come back. The tricky part about that interpretation is that it says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. It doesn't just say what it says about the, the sacrifice of Christ. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. The Calvinists would say simply that the person who falls away really isn't falling away. falling away. He was just never saved in the first place. And what they, they bolster that argument by saying, well, it doesn't say that they received the light. They were enlightened. The light was shown on them, but they didn't receive the light. They tasted, but they did not consume. Uh, they tasted of the word, tasted of the power. Um, and, and I guess I can see that. You know, you can taste something... You, Chew it up, spit it out if you want. You don't have to swallow it. You don't have to consume it. The problem with that approach, and I think it's pretty clear, it's actually manifold, but one, for one thing, when it says partakers of the Holy Spirit, that's pretty hard to get around. I don't know how you can be a partaker of the Holy Spirit and not be born again. And as far as tasting, uh, this same word, uh, in this same letter, it actually says Jesus tasted death for us. Now, what's that, to, what's that to mean, that he didn't die? He got a taste of it, he started to die, and then backed out? No, he died, didn't he? So the truth, tough as it is to swallow, is actually a pretty straightforward reading of this text. Someone 
who has experienced enlightenment, received the Holy Spirit, received the Word of God, and did you notice how it said the powers of the age to come? It's talking here about miracles, including perhaps uh, a miraculous account of your salvation. You've seen these things. You've experienced these things. And then renounces Christ. This person has brought more shame, more public shame on Jesus than any person who never believed in the first place. We can understand somebody who has never encountered Jesus or never met him or never known him and who continues to resist him. But somebody who publicly accepts Christ, professes Christ, confesses Christ, and then renounces Christ, that brings more shame and more, more shame on Christ, more difficulty to the church. And the person who comes to this place cannot be saved, is what it looks like this passage says. So the big question, as I see it anyway, is how do we know if someone has truly come to that place? And what good does it do us as evangelists, as those who not only believe, but we live that gospel, we preach that gospel? What good does it do us to know that somebody has reached that point? Meaning this, if I know someone who I believe, who I'm convinced they made a real commitment to Christ at some point in their life, and that they are no longer a confessing Christian, is it a waste of my time to keep praying for them, to keep encouraging them, challenging them, sharing the gospel with them? Or should I keep at it? Because if they can't be brought back to repentance, why am I bothering? And let me ask you this as a way of exploring a possible answer. Did any of you, when you were a child, ever say anything hateful to your parents? Have any of your children ever said anything hateful to you? Something like, uh, I hate you. Has anybody ever done this or experienced this? A lot of people. I did that. I don't know if you remember this, Mom. <laughs> I was about... Uh, did anybody ever run away from home? Yeah. Uh, I did. I was about 11. I think I was 11. Uh, I was mad. I was really, really mad. And if you were in my shoes, you'd have been mad too. You know what I was mad about? I don't either. I have no, absolutely no recollection of what I was upset with, but I was upset, and I have a very, very clear memory of stomping into the kitchen, this is in that old house in the country, and putting my hands on my hips and saying, right now, I was looking at my dad, but I think you were in there too, I said, right now, I don't like you. And if this doesn't change, I'm going to hate you. Yeah, I was, I, that was my threat. I was going to show them. I was going to punish them with the terror of not having the love of their son. This was my big play. And my dad demonstrated his mercy 
and his love and just how upset he was with this threat by doing everything he could not to burst out laughing. I can remember him sitting there at the chair trying desperately to take me seriously and just kind of going. <laughs> then I went into my room and I literally, this is embarrassing, I wrapped up a little bit of food and some of my precious possessions in a big bandana and tied it to a stick because that's how you ran away according to all the hobo stories I read and saw on TV. And I wanted, I wanted them to see, I, when I walked out the door, I wanted them to see that bandana and stick so they knew I was running away. And uh, I don't know if I announced it or just left as obviously as possible, but I walked out that door down toward the railroad tracks, and I'm sure my parents panicked and wept and fasted and prayed for the entire 15 minutes I was gone, or however long it was. In my mind, in my passion at that moment, I meant what I said. Now, the running away part was probably a bluff from the beginning. I meant what I said, but my parents knew better. You understand what I'm saying? All I'm saying is that Jesus, our great high, our great high priest, knows much better than we do what's in our heart from moment to moment even about such serious matters. Uh, he knows the difference between a tantrum and a genuine renunciation of our faith. I'm not trying to make light of it, you understand. And again, how do we know the difference? The only solution I can offer you is this, is that I'm personally convinced, uh, and I'll back this up in a second, that a person who truly walks away from God will never want to come back. How do I know a person uh, that has renounced God can't be saved again? Because a person who has truly renounced God will never want to be saved again. There are people who might say something in the heat of the moment, people who might be confused, but if they have truly abandoned their faith, then they have abandoned it. They will, it's not like they will be beating and pleading and crying at the door of Jesus and he's saying, no, you had your chance. Now I'll tell you why. The best example by far uh, to support this position is Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You know it. You remember the father in this story had two sons, and one of them asked for his share of the inheritance. Now, I want to wait till you die. And, and this story, this part of the story, loses some of its force in our culture and age, but this was a shocking, this was the shocking part of the story to the audience, to, and, and, and even to this day in that part of the country, this is the part that really gets under people's skin because what the son was essentially saying was, Dad, you are dead to me. I count you as dead, and therefore, since you are dead, I want the stuff that I would have gotten when you died. And as you know, after he, after he spends himself into bankruptcy, he came to his senses and returns to his father's house, not so he can say, well, I had my fun, I guess I'll go back and enjoy being a son again. No, he goes back with the intention of hiring himself as a servant. He doesn't in, in expect because he knows he doesn't deserve to be welcomed back into sonship. He has renounced it. 
But when he heads back, what was the father's response? Did he stand there and say, well, I wonder what he wants? No, he ran. To greet him, welcomes him, kisses him, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on him, and what? Restores him to sonship immediately. One thing to never lose sight of in this parable is that the man who left was a son. He was a son, he renounced his sonship, and he was restored to sonship. This wasn't a lost person being adopted by the father. This was a son who left and returned. The other thing never to lose sight of is that he returned. There is nothing in the story about what his fate would have been had he not returned. None of the benefits of sonship applied to him while he was outside the household of the father. So my answer is that if a person still wants to return to Christ, a person can return to Christ. And I'm not saying that to make this an easier pill to swallow, to make this passage more palatable. It's still a very serious warning because what if the prodigal son had just been a little smarter with his money? What if he had left with his father's goods, gone out, had his fun, but invested wisely, made wiser choices, and been a success, at least by worldly standards? I'll tell you what, he might have enjoyed his life just enough outside the father's house to never have returned. He would have succeeded and enjoyed the benefits of success, but he would still live and die without the benefits of sonship. I've mentioned this before, but I've known, and you have too, Christians uh, with uh, perhaps like grown children who are not following Christ. And they'll go on and on about how well they're doing at their job, how great their marriage is, how great their family is. And it's kind of like, well, of course we pray for their salvation. We wish they were going to church and stuff like that. But at least they're doing well in life. And maybe we need to be cold-blooded enough to pray that their life doesn't go so well. That, they, that things get uncomfortable enough that they start seeking their father's house again that anything would happen that would cause them to return to Christ. Anyway, this passage, along with the rest of the letter, is meant to be applied to us as we read it. I think a lot of times we read it and we think, boy, uh, what about so-and-so? What about my kid? What about my, my friend? What about uh, somebody that I know? I want to think they're saved, or I want to think they can be saved again. It's meant to be applied to us. We need to take it seriously that it is entirely possible for us to drift away. None of us are immune to that. And don't slip away or, or walk away from the grounds of your belief. If you truly, truly fall away, you will not come back. And we'll know it because you won't want to. So um, we start to read here some things about Melchizedek. He wants to expound and then interrupts himself to chastise them for their spiritual immaturity, warns them that if they don't press on, if they don't stay the course, 
it will end badly for them. But he ends this passage with a note of encouragement. We'll pick it up in chapter 6, verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Look, he's saying, you haven't lost your salvation. God knows what you've done as ministers. God knows what you have done as believers. And you are more than capable of continuing on. But you must remain diligent. You grow up, mature, and desire solid food, the deeper things of God. Don't be discouraged by the fact that you do not seem to be walking right now in all the manifest blessings because our role models, our heroes of the faith, inherited those promises by faith and patience. And you know he will expound on this in chapter 11, the hall of faith, by faith this guy did this, this woman did this, this one did this, this one did this, by faith, by faith, by faith, and we'll see those stories. Then he goes back to talking about Jesus as high priest and references again Melchizedek. Now, that's, uh, we've mentioned him three times now. Do you remember Melchizedek? Quite a story, Melchizedek. He appears in Genesis 14, and it's so important that I'm going to read the whole story. So bear with me. In Genesis chapter 14, Verse 18, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, him being Abraham. Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and, he blessed, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. That's it. That's the whole story of Melchizedek. Uh, he's referenced, as I mentioned, in Psalm 110, which the author of Hebrews quotes here. But, it is, it's, but his whole story is those two verses in Genesis 14. We don't have an origin story for Melchizedek. We don't know where he comes from. There's no beginning to this story. We don't see what happens to him after his encounter with Ab Abraham. There's no future. He just is. Kind of like uh, Jesus. Kind of like God. That's who he represents in this story. He is the priest of God Most High, but he lives hundreds of years before the priesthood was established. That's why the timeline stuff is important. It's important to know the Bible stories, and it's very important to know the order that they occur. Because he is the priest of God Most High, hundreds of years before the Levitical priesthood was established by the law. He, uh, he receives tithes from Abraham in this passage, Hundreds of years before the legal requirement of tithing. He is a type of Christ. His priesthood does not come from the law. Some have suggested, uh, and I think it's possible that Melchizedek actually is an, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. The point he's making in Hebrews is that they understood the role of the high priest under the law. 
And they revered Moses, and they revered Aaron and this whole uh, priesthood lineage. But Jesus is our priest, our high priest, the one who represents us before God. But he doesn't get his priesthood through the law. He wasn't even of the tribe of Levi. Levi, he was a tribe of Levi twice. Levi, but of Judah. He's a priest, not like Aaron, but like Melchizedek. He is a priest forever. In chapter 7, it demonstrates not only his superiority to Moses, but his superiority to Abraham. He says, look, no question. We know how this thing is set up. The lesser gives offerings, gives gifts to the greater. We are here, we give tithes to the Levites who offer them on our behalf. They receive them on behalf of God. But Abraham was greater than Levi because he received a promise and blessing directly from God. And Abraham, the greater than Levi, gave tithes to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. This gets their attention. And Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, Hebrews 7.22 says that Jesus has become the surety or guarantee of a better covenant. The Old Testament priesthood, you understand, was constantly changing. Why was it changing? Because priests died. They didn't live forever, so when a priest died, actually retired and died, but this cycle, generations, the priesthood would change. Uh, but also it was different because the priests, as Paul, whoever, makes great, takes, goes to great pains to demonstrate, the priests themselves were sinners. They needed to act as priests on their own behalf. And the offerings that they made were offerings for their own sin as well as for the sin of the people. And then, obviously Jesus is different here. He's a priest forever. He doesn't sin, and his sacrifice was once and for all. And we're, I'm wrapping this up for today. We're, we're getting there. I'm moving quickly through these chapters because, like I said last week, it's five chapters about the priesthood. Uh, but he moves back from talking specifically about the priesthood to the law in general. Remember, the Jews he was writing to here were in danger not of abandoning faith and religion, but abandoning Christianity and going back under the law. Look at chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. For if that first covenant, the one that they were flirting with going back under, if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, reference to the law, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now the problem I, I trip over uh, I used to trip over when I read this, when it says, for if the first covenant had been faultless, it, it, was there a fault in the law? Because the word tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect. It is, right? He's not saying there was anything wrong with the law. Notice it says, if, if no fault had been found in the first covenant, and then it says in verse 8, but uh, because finding fault with them, not the covenant, not the law, but with the people on the other side of this agreement. 
the covenant was flawed because mankind with whom God entered into this covenant is flawed. We were the flaw in the covenant. And so God says, we're going to do this differently. I'm going to cut covenant with myself. Jesus and God the Son and God the Father make this covenant. And it involves this offering of the blood of Christ. And there is no fault there because both covenant partners are absolutely perfect, absolutely sinless, absolutely holy. What's it have to do with us? We get to be in Christ knowing that our end of the covenant has been held up perfectly by him. This is what our high priest does for us that no high priest in history had ever been able to do up to that point, obviously. He starts to um, uh, describe the sanctuary, the tabernacle, and, the, and eventually the temple, which had the holy place. And he describes it here, and he describes it in chapter 9 in the description of how the priest, the high priest, once a year would go behind the veil into the holy of holies and offer the blood of a lamb for what? For his sin and for the people's sin. But Christ enters not this tabernacle, not this temple, when the Holy of Holies that Christ enters is the presence of the Father in heaven. The real Holy of Holies, not the representative tabernacle on the earth. And the offering he makes there is his own blood, and he doesn't do it year after year. He did it once and for all. That's where we will pick up next week. If you haven't been reading along or if you haven't been reading ahead, please read chapters 8 through 10 for next week. Um, There's another scary passage, very similar to the one we read today in chapter 10. And uh, this all goes faster and smoother if you've done the reading, if you're familiar with the text before I preach it. So chapters 8 to 10 is your homework this week. Meanwhile, stand up with me. I want you to focus on two things that we discussed. Right now, I want you to focus on two things that we discussed today, and one of them is this. None of us, none of us are absolutely immune to falling away. There's nothing we can read in the Word and we say, that doesn't have anything to do with me. We need to all be diligent. We are entirely capable of neglecting God to the, even to the point of renouncing our own salvation. We need to do what God is telling the Hebrews to do here. Be diligent, press on, stay the course, and live in faith and patience. Do you need, talking to you now, do you need to wake up from your slumber? Can you say, I know I had a born-again experience, but to be honest, I would describe my Christian life as sluggish. Sluggish sounds like just kind of a a tame word. Eh, lazy, slow, it's not really vital, but I know I'm saved. And the whole message here about this that Paul's talking about is sluggish. You're a bigger step closer to renunciation of your faith than you think you are just because of your sluggishness. Do you need to shake off that sluggishness today and make a fresh commitment? It's not just a matter of losing some rewards in heaven. It is about the very real risk that your sluggishness will bear the fruit of apostasy. Another one is this, another thing to focus on. Everything necessary for your salvation has been accomplished already by Jesus Christ. 
There is no unpaid balance. The work is done, it's finished, and all you have to do is accept it. And you do that by acknowledging your need for Jesus. Well, if all the work for salvation has been done, doesn't that just mean I'm saved? No. You have to accept it. And that acceptance is, starts with the, the humility and, the, and the, the acknowledgement that, you know what, I need to be saved. I try to be good, so maybe I haven't tried to be good. I think I'm a good person, but you know you're not perfect. You know you're not holy. You need a Savior just like everybody has needed a Savior. It means acknowledging that Jesus did it, that Jesus is the Savior you need. You claim the salvation he purchased for you by submitting to his Lordship. Romans 10 says that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So first, and you can do this with a show of hands, you can do this in your heart, I would rather see if there's anybody who needs to make these decisions. Is there anybody, first of all, who needs to be saved? You have either never confessed Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and accepted that salvation, or perhaps you've actually renounced your salvation. And you would say, it's not just a matter of recommitting. It's a matter of coming home. I need to be saved. Is there anybody who would say, I need to be saved today? All right? Is there anybody who says, you know, I, I've, I've been uh, not where I should be with Jesus, and I've known it, but I'm realizing today that I've been way too okay with that. I'm sluggish, and I don't want my sluggishness to turn into apostasy. I'm making a commitment to Jesus Christ today, the one who I know has saved me and who has mercifully preserved me from renouncing him. I am taking that step. I'm stepping it up. I'm shaking off my slumber, and I'm living for him full bore starting today. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I want everybody to pray it just as a way of, if those of you who, nope, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Man, I am praying, I'm reading, I'm preaching, I'm living, I'm doing it right. Thank God for you. But let us all just say this as an agreement, as a confession, just to press on with the things that we're pressing on with while we support those who are making this very crucial commitment today. Can we do that? Say this with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for saving me. Forgive me for taking it for granted, for focusing too much on me and ignoring you. Forgive my selfishness. Forgive my sluggishness. In your mercy and in your love, Reveal yourself to me in fresh ways. Stir in me a hunger for your word. Sharpen my conscience. And in all things, in times of celebration, in times of suffering, let me be found always in my Father's household. 
giving glory to you, boldly confessing the Christ who saved me. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You can be seated. We are we're going to uh, receive our offering today. It's actually, there's two offerings. I'm sorry, we're going to receive it on your way out. Uh, if those of you who remembered, it's actually Mission Sunday, so we, we received two offerings. There are two separate receptacles out there. Uh, both checks get made out. If you're writing two separate checks, make them out to Living Word Family Church. If you need a separate envelope for cash, you can raise your hand. Uh, if you forgot to grab an extra one, I think the ushers can get you one. And uh, I will pray over the offering. And then as you're dismissed by the ushers, you can drop those in the appropriate basket as you exit. A reminder uh, about the funeral on Tuesday, 9.30 to 11 visitation for Betty Ashley. Uh, funeral at 11. If you can help out, see Char back there before you leave. Uh, I encourage you to do your fellowshipping outside. It's a beautiful day, but I encourage you to fellowship. Just get out there in the sunshine and fresh air where this blows away and, and hang out a little bit and refrain, uh, please, for the time being from close contact, hugs, kisses, no matter how you personally feel about that, I ask that you honor this request for the time being. Okay? Wow. Okay? Is there, was that resentment or lack of attention or what? Okay? I do want to hear from you, and I, and I understand the frustration. Uh, these are, this is in... Well, never mind. I'm not going to go there right now. Praise God. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. Jesus is Lord. Amen? Are you ready to give this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for being such an effective and perfect high priest for us, lacking nothing and welcoming us into your righteousness and your holiness where we can thrive in the presence of God based on that finished work. Thank you now, as always, for the opportunity to give into the work of your kingdom. We thank you for Living Word Family Church. We thank you for this church family and everything that you're accomplishing in our midst and in individual homes, and the way you are using this church, and the way you are preparing this church for use. But Lord, today, especially on Mission Sunday, we also thank you for the excellent uh, ministries that you have allowed us to partner with, the lives that are being changed here in Champaign County, across the state, across the country, and around the world, because of these faithful men and women of God, and because of our support. That what a what an honored as Lord to know that what we do here right now today is supporting the gospel it's, and people, people are being delivered people are being saved people are being healed set free all over the world because you have been generous to us and we have been obedient in returning that to you as you direct us as you lay it on our hearts and in obedience uh, to the tithe so thank you for this thank you for your abundant provision we give joyfully and we give expectantly lord we know that you have attached a very precious promise to our obedience in this regard and we expect the windows of heaven to be opened and we expect a blessing to be poured into our lives that there's not room enough to contain father so that we can give and give and give again to your glory in jesus name all the believers said amen god bless you as you give thanks for listening we hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with christ Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.